Hello, welcome to Words Fail Me. My name is Jude Mark McGowan. This is a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation, who are a US-based non-profit organization. If you're curious about what they do, you can go to their website, epicprojects.org. My guest today is Margaret Malpass. She's an author, a specialist dyslexia teacher, and the former joint chair and now VP of the British Dyslexia Association. Prior to her work within the dyslexia community, Margaret studied as a HR manager and training manager. Her company, Malpass Flexible Learning, trained the largest number of HR managers in the UK and abroad. She believes the one in seven people in the UK who have a learning disability can, with the right support, propose creative solutions to the many issues we face today as a society. Climate change, education, politics, and recovering from the pandemic. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of dyslexic people so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. And they have a free online screening tool which you can use to assess yourself or a loved one for dyslexia. I really enjoyed Margaret breaking down the 10 characteristics for success, which is in her book, Self-Fulfillment with Dyslexia, A Blueprint for Success, which she talks about and we have included a link to in the show notes. So here's the show. Enjoy. Okay, well, Margaret, how are you um, and, uh, and where are you? I'm fine, and I'm talking to you from southern Spain. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Whereabouts in southern Spain? Um, we're not far from Marbella, and uh, the weather at the moment has been absolutely wonderful for a week, but now we've got a storm coming in, so it's actually very windy. If you can hear wind in the background, I'm afraid it's actually the palm trees that are swaying a bit. There we go. That's that's quite the ASMR detail for people who are into audio, just a little bit of palm trees swishing. So are you getting the tail end of um, Storm Eunice? No, I don't think so. I think this is coming up from the Sahara, I think. So uh, possibly another storm <laughs> that's going to come towards you later. But we, actually, we did wow. rather well. We we, we um, flew, flew out here the day before Storm Eunice hit. So, unfortunately, at home, we do have a tile that's broken and a soffit board that's fallen off, apparently. But um, apart from that, all is well. Good. Good. Well, yeah, you, you, your storm sounds a, a lot more exotic coming up from the Sahara than, <laughs> yes. than Storm Eunice. It's certainly warmer. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, that dates the podcast immediately. So, we're recording on the 25th of February um, uh, for, for the listeners. Um, and Storm Eunice passed, what, a few days ago? And then we've got, we had another one. Um, but yeah, so so let, let's let's dive straight in. So your journey into um, being a part of the dyslexia community, uh, how did it happen? What was your background, uh, professional, personal, etc.? Okay, so um, uh, professionally, um, I originally trained as an HR manager, and then I got an opportunity to train others through their professional examination route, um, and. That led to setting up a company with my husband and we became the largest provider of HR professional qualifications in uh, Europe. Um, I didn't know at that stage that actually um, I was um, 
within the spectrum, the dyslexia spectrum, because in fact I'm profoundly dyscalculic, which is like dyslexia but to do with number. Um, But obviously from quite an early age I knew I had issues with number. Then um, I have two children and um, then I've grown up. Um, But my son um, was diagnosed as dyslexic when he was eight um, and, um, you know, we st- I started researching into it at that point and looking for clues, as most parents do, um, to yes. be able to help him. Um, roll forward quite a few years, and um, in 2000, we sold our business. In 2002, I think it was, we started talking about dyslexia and stuff, etc. And then I happened to go to... Um, a conference at Oxford University at the Said Business School, uh, which was, um, I was invited, you know, I didn't pay to go, I was invited, um, because I got involved in social entrepreneurship. And this was all about social entrepreneurs. And I kept sitting next to the same lady um, at different events at it and discovered um, that we had a lot in common, we got friendly. Not very long after that, she told me she was applying for the job of chief executive of the British Dyslexia Association, at which point I said, oh gosh, you know, it'd be lovely to help because we have it in the family. Um, And about three months later, she came to my husband and I and said, "Um, we're going to close the doors on Monday unless you're able to help us. And so we sat down, pulled through the finances and thought, you know, we really can't let this happen. We can't let the VDA go down the tubes. Um, So we pumped money into it um, as an interest-free loan and then set about working. And for the next few years, we both worked about six and a half days a week voluntarily, um, helping them to survive. Um, I was appointed as chair and then subsequently my husband... uh, joined me in that, in that we became joint chairs and acted as joint chairs for about 11 years and retired um about i think it's four years this coming december um, but in the meantime i had fully trained and qualified as a specialist um dyslexia teacher um not because i particularly wanted to go back into teaching but more to be really able to understand what this was all about and i have to say it was a, a journey of very considerable enlightenment doing that particular course. So that's, in a nutshell, how I got involved. Wow. I mean, that's incredibly concise. Um, <laughs> uh, there's so much <laughs> to unpack from there. There's so much to unpack from there. So um, when did you first start to suspect that you were dyslexic? So um, just to correct that impression, I'm not actually dyslexic at all. Um, in fact, my oh. degree is in English. That's fine. Um, but I'm dyscalculic yes. and very and mm. very profoundly so. So that happened um, was an interesting little story. Um, I'd been um, busy introducing Brian Butterworth, who um, Professor Butterworth, who is one of the UK's, um, you know, very very big experts on dyscalculia, um, at one of the British Dyslexia Association's conferences. And as we walked off the podium, I said to him, um, "I saw very well and very interesting." Um, Brian, but your definition is very narrow. What about people like me? You know, children, when I was a child, I said I was sort of excelling in lots of subjects, but I absolutely couldn't do anything with maths at all. Mm. And he looked at me and he said, "Um, that's very strange and there will be an explanation. And he said, you know, you've obviously, um, this is his words, by the way, not mine. He said, you've obviously, you know, been a very high achiever in life and therefore I'm very, very interested and I have a project going at the moment, a research project about people who have got on 
but despite having had, you know, some major issue to do with maths or number work. So what followed yeah. was I agreed to be involved in this. Foolish me. <laughs> and I went <laughs> to um, UCL for two days of tests. And I, um, it, you know, it still makes me shake slightly thinking about it. Um, I, uh, I... Um, it's not unusual. An emotional response, I think, to all of this stuff is, is not at all unusual, as no. as listeners will, you know, empathise with. I'm sure. No doubt. Um, anyway, there were so the, there was a very very pleasant psychologist who was, um, you know, going to run me through these various diagnostic tests that they were trialling, um, and two um, students, two psychology students, and the psychologist said to me, "Would it be okay for these two students to sit in?" and observe, you know, and see what's going on. And I said, yeah, yeah, fine. So anyway, um, the psychologist took me off to um, do these tests. And I think probably this maths test was probably only about 40 minutes. But to be honest to me, it felt like it was all day. And I had two psychology students facing me. So when I was getting all the answers wrong, um, their faces were a bit of a picture. And I'm sure they (laughs) thought, who is this woman? Why are they bothering to test her? Anyway, after seriously knowing I was really badly, badly failing at this and being very, very embarrassed, I was really quite shaky by the end of it. And the psychologist was really nice and she recognised it and she said, OK, we'll change tack and we're going to do a language test with you. Um, and so they gave me lots and lots and lots of words and asked me to define them and I had absolutely no problem and I got them all right and it went on for, again, another 40-odd minutes with me defining words which were more and more archaic and unusual. And when it stopped, I looked across again at the two students and they were astonished and they said, um, we just couldn't believe it. They said, about two-thirds of the way through that test, you'd lost us. We didn't recognise those words at all. Anyway, I didn't get the results for quite a long time, but eventually I um, met Professor Butterworth again um, and I asked him and he said, you are profoundly dyscalculic. and it's very interesting. He said the psychologist who tested you was fascinated because he said they had never seen um, anyone using so many coping strategies for number work. Um, once I'd kind of settled down with the idea that, okay, it's an answer to why I couldn't do numbers in the past, um, and I've got over the kind of emotional shock of it, um, it's actually made life a lot easier because now I know to ask for help. So, for example, I'm really pretty useless at knowing my left and my right so when we're in the car and my husband is driving as I'm navigating we use um your way and my way and he's quite comfortable doing that and it really helps um if I've got to do some kind of sum that has for example ordering curtains or something like that you know which involves measurements I just won't do it yeah. on my own I'll, I'll make sure that he double checks me because otherwise I know I could end up with entirely the wrong thing and it costs a lot of money um, yeah. There are all sorts of jokes amongst our family about me ordering food online during um, the COVID um, lockdown and getting, you know, either far too much. So I've got enormous um, pots of oregano and ginger in my cupboard or getting yeah. tiny packets of sprouts or whatever that are only enough for one person. Um, and it isn't something I can correct. It's not because I'm being lazy or not trying to check no. or whatever. And there are just times when it's just simply just not there. I, I, I just can't do it. It's just a blank. Um, and I don't even know it's happened, which is a bit concerning. 
Did um, did Professor Butterworth and, and and his colleagues did they did they share with you the the diagnosis? Did they sort of break it down? No, they didn't, and I think that's mainly because it was a research project. Um, right. You know, as I'd had trained as a specialist teacher, I, I know you know the kind of good feedback you're supposed to do, and in those circumstances where you've had a full diagnosis done by a um, person who's properly trained. Um, then, you know, part of it is to sit down with a person and actually work through with them what the results show and what can be done about it and whether there is areas of strength as well as areas of weakness. Right. And in your study as, as a dyslexic teacher, how adjacent are they, um, dyslexia and dyscalculia? You do get overlaps. You get overlaps across all the um, different uh, areas of specific learning difficulty, which is the umbrella term for dyslexia, dyscalculia, and so on. Um, yeah. It's not, I don't think it's quite as common as some of the others um, in terms of overlap, but um, you do find, for example, there's a lot of language difficulties with maths because we use the same words. So if you think about a child going to school and we talk about doing takeaway in terms of subtraction, well, to them, yeah. a takeaway might mean an Indian or Chinese meal. So yeah. if you've got yeah. uh, language issues and confusion, it can actually, you know, not help when people are studying number. Um, in my case, yeah. it's very discreet. You know, my, my issues with number do not stretch into issues with language at all. Um, but I think sometimes they may do with working memory, um, which tends to yes. underpin quite a lot of the um, specific learning difficulty areas. Working memory. Sorry, what do you mean by working memory? Ah, oh, well, working memory is part, the part of our memory system, which is where we are manipulating things in real time. So my best way of describing it is a bit like the clipboard on your computer. You know, when you put a few things there and you're working on them. Um, yeah. It's like that. So it's not actually a physical thing. It's, it's a connection between different parts of our short-term memory systems and so on. But it's where we sort of hold information. So to give you an example, if someone is trying to spell a word, then they've got to hold that word in their head and they've got to dredge up, you know, rules about spelling from their long-term memory and so on and piece it all together. And it's working memory yes. that is responsible for doing that task. So what we often find is that individuals with difficulties like dyslexia, dyscalculia and so on quite often have a weaker working memory. Yeah, that, that certainly tallies up with, with my experience. And I'm sure there'll be lots of listeners who, who uh, that will make a huge amount of sense for them. I mean, certainly with myself, um, there are elements of my... I, I have a very detailed, rich uh, memory of events in my life. I can recall what I might have been wearing and where I was and the place and, and, and things people said to me. But then when I'm attempting to potentially problem-solve something in the moment... Um, and I have to utilise, as you say, like um, long-term uh, coping mechanisms or patterns in order to solve a problem. Sometimes I, I be my brain becomes sort of overwhelmed, a bit hot, and it, and it forgets what it's trying to do. Um, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So, it's so curious. I don't know if, if that's something yeah. that you, you experience as well. Um, generally, I don't, um, unless I'm in a very stressful situation, and that's not uncommon. Um, but what's what we know is sort of average, if you like, is for people to hold sort of seven to nine pieces of information at one time. And from my work with people who are dyslexic, they often can only hold three. 
Um, and if they are stressed, then yes. the whole thing tends to go to pieces. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah, really, really common. really, really does not help. No. Stress doesn't yeah, I've, help. I've long suspected that I might have um, dyscalculia myself. It's, it's something I should... Mm -hmm. I should get to the bottom of because, as you say, it's it's when you are forewarned, you are forearmed about it. And, Absolutely, and, and you can yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, adapt yourself and find those coping mechanisms. Yes, exactly right. And of course, you've mentioned how rich your memory is for places and events and so on, etc. And that's the place to start looking at coping strategies. Um, and there's a memory tool where, if you have to learn things and so on, you can use a. a, a a coping strategy called locus, which is where you um, imagine that you've left things in different parts of your house, for example, and you just go around collecting them up from where you think, you you know, in your head. I mean, not, on, not yeah. physically. Um, and clearly for someone like yourself, it would work very, very well. So yeah, it's kind of, you know, arming yourself with these coping strategies, which actually brings us pretty neatly to um, the research I did with adults. Um, and the kind of coping strategies that um, I realised existed as a consequence of the work I was doing. Yeah, and was that something you developed when you were working in HR training management? No, no, I didn't. Although um, I really had, you know, at that stage, you know, I knew my son had some difficulties, but I thought it was very localised. I had no idea about the numbers of people who were affected by this. And it was, that only came about when I joined the British Sexual Association and, you know, got involved with them and they were talking to me about, you know, how many. And I was absolutely staggered. I mean, to talk about one in 10 of the population, in fact, it's probably more than that. Um, yeah. It was just, it was just, you know, jaw-dropping. Um, mm. And... The only thing I got close to in my professional life of doing with that was that, um, you know, I was teaching adults, you know, um, our mid-age range for people studying with us was uh, 28 to 34. So these were people, you know, already had quite a lot of experience under their belt. Um, but they were at work and they often had families. Um, they were predominantly female um, in the HR profession. Um, and they were going to be doing very, very difficult exams to, to get their... Um, their membership, um, their professional membership. Um, and so one of the things that I quickly learned was that they really had to have very good study skills. And so one of the very first workshops we put on for them was um, how to study, how to, how to use your memory and so on. So, you know, there is an overlap there with the things I was teaching at the time and then coping strategies later on. Um, but it was really only when I got involved with the BDA that I realised just, you know, how many people were affected. Yeah. The scale of it is huge, massive. You know, it's 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 so encompassing. I, I it's a sad thing. I've, I've talked about it often, but uh, being at school and noticing that their my my classmates were were probably the ones who were being disruptive. Um, were probably the ones who who didn't have the access to the support that that I did. You know, because my mum was dyslexic mm. and, and uh, a labour counsellor, so she, so she was mm -hmm. she was always pushing for. Um, you know, for me to get mm. the support that I needed. Uh, mm. Because as you know, it, it takes a huge amount of support for any child with learning difficulties to to orient and circumscribe themselves to what is, you know, quite an outmoded form of education. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's completely unsurprising that the, the how uncomfortable you felt uh, with those psychologists doing your, you know, arithmetic... It's, it's, that's really not a um, conducive state of being for you to learn, grow and self-actualise as a person, which is what education should surely be. Mm. 
Yes, I and mean, I don't in any way blame the team um, at, at UCL for that and the oh, science no. system. I really don't. But I do think that it is quite extraordinary that our education system in the main has not adapted to the fact that at least one in ten learners um, that learn atypically in their view. Um, and, of course, it will be much yeah. bigger than that because we're only looking at um, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia and so on. Um, we're not looking at, you know, the other children that might have other difficulties like hearing difficulties and so on. So, yeah. you, you know, you, you you quickly learn when you're trying to be, you know, help people to be successful. Everybody's very much individual. But our state yes. system obviously is based on the idea of um, people going through a kind of a, a sort of bus kind of way of getting people through education you know you sort of bust them through and it, and it doesn't necessarily work and it is no. immensely damaging I mean, there's no doubt about that when i went on to do research with adults you know i realized just how damaged many of them were from those very early edu educational experiences which is avoidable and very very sad and well done to the mums who helped like your own mum vital in actually making a difference for children absolutely Absolutely. I mean, you've you've written about this. You've written about in in, in one of your great books. You've, you've talked about how it is that you can be successful. What what are the um uh, the ten the ten rules or characteristics or that that, that mm. are that brings success? Um, because as you say, at the moment our education system is not uh, built to serve everybody becoming the best version of themselves or, or succeeding in whichever way they quantify success. Um, and I'd love you to talk about that. I'd love you to talk about those those 10 characteristics. Of course, yeah. Um, Absolutely. So when I arrived at the um, the BDA, I found there was, you know, a, a huge number of people who were very, very knowledgeable about children and dyslexia. That had been very much the drive to try and help um, children with education, which of course is very, very worthy. Um, but I didn't really fit into that because that wasn't my area of expertise. So I was kind of looking around for how I could help. And what I realised was that um, the obvious thing for me to do was to focus on adults. Um, and there was a crying need for it. And many, many adults who were attached to the BDA one way or another, um, who, you know, were continually saying, you know, well, what about adults as well? You know, let's not just only focus on children. And... Um, some years in, after I'd done my qualification and learned more and so on, um, I was uh, asked to do a presentation at the BDA's international conference. They have this very large international conference every three years, um, bringing together experts from across the world. Um, it's a fascinating, absolutely fascinating event. because goes over about three days usually, although obviously with COVID it was put online um, for, for the last occasion. Um and I thought, well, what am I going to talk about? And I thought, really, I don't want to just do something that is kind of just a standard chat, a standard talk. So I decided to do a small amount of research with adults. Um, and I wrote a questionnaire and got it checked by two academics um, to make sure that it was, you know, ethical and, 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 and so on. And invited people to fill it in. Um, and I got uh, 78 um, completed questionnaires in the first round. Um, and one of the things that the academics looking at the questionnaire said to me was, you need to make this narrower. You're going to find it very, very difficult to analyse afterwards because it's so broad and you could get so many different responses. 
Well, the astonishing thing was that when I did get them back, um, they were all very, very similar. The, 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 um, the correlation of answers was quite extraordinary from adults who didn't, you know, not know each other or anything. These, these were people I met as a consequence of doing all sorts of work across the BDA. Um, and there was, you know, huge um, significance in their results because, as I say, they were, they were all answering in very much the same sort of way. And that enabled me, in fact, to analyse it relatively easily. Um, I went on to um, develop the study further and get more questionnaires done um, so that I had um, quite a pool of different sorts of people. So I used to get people to answer them when I was running a course for parents, for example, who had dyslexic children. Um, if any of them were dyslexic, I'd say, would you mind? You know, And we'd offer support to them so that if they didn't want to read it, I could read it and write their answers down for them. Um, I also got a pool of academics who were dyslexic to um, answer the questionnaire as well, um, giving a very slightly different version of um, the results. Anyway, what came out loud and clear was that there were 10 factors for success. The, the major one was um, determination. And, and actually, that doesn't surprise me because that is the thing that you have to have if you're going to be a success at anything in life. So it's not just exclusively to people with dyslexia or dyscalculia. Uh, anything you do, you have to be determined. The second one was having sufficient self-esteem. Mm. Now, that's quite an interesting link to education because what you often find with um, children is, is that their self-esteem is actually children very, very low because, as you mentioned, you know, their peers are getting on and they're not. Yes. Um, but interestingly, it can improve dramatically after they leave school. And you don't have to be, like, really 100% confident. You just have to have enough to be able to get on. Then what I found was most people had developed a passion for something. So, you know, it's quite common for later teenage boys to develop a passion for cars or motorbikes or something, and they learn to read by looking at manuals, like the Haynes Manual mm. or something similar. Um, <laughs> and then I found that it was really very useful if a young person had found a niche for employment or for volunteering yes. or something like that, so that they found somewhere that was sympathetic to them and where their strengths were put to the to the fore. So it sort of meant that, okay, you might not be able to write, really write terribly well, but it doesn't matter because you're really, really good with people or you're really, really technically advanced in terms of doing problem solving in IT or something like that. And that made a yes. huge difference because it was shifting their view of themselves and their agency. Yes. Instead of sort of feeling, you know, I can't do anything and my peers are all getting on, then you become, actually, I'm really good in this one particular area and the rest of it is kind of secondary, really, and I can get by. Yes. So that helped a lot. Then um, one of the things we do know is that um, people with specific learning difficulties have a kind of different brain pattern to bring together for problem solving. And their problem solving is what we call atypical. You know, they, go, they do different things with it. They, they use um, a wider variety of sources um, to be able to think about a problem and how to tackle it. And you find that the successful dyslexic people are using that all the time and, and making full use of it. I discovered, perhaps not surprisingly, there was a link to creativity um, and that many of the people said mm. that they you know, had found their, their creative thinking or their creative um, ability for art or um, any form of activity involving a, a creative thinking patterns um, 
was a distinct strength. Some people talked about empathy. Um, they said they got on really well in caring professions like nurses, doctors, um, but also in things like marketing. Um, because yeah. being able to step in the shoes of somebody else, you know, it was really valuable. And so their empathy skills, which they felt was a byproduct of their experience as dyslexia. So in other words, it wasn't down to the fact that they were dyslexic. It was more that having been, you know, in a situation where they were on the back foot educationally, it had created empathy where they could see when others were struggling. And so they developed their skills. Um, the next one was verbal influencing skills. If you don't write terribly well or whatever, you're not comfortable in print, then what tends to happen is you operate much more verbally. And when you um, do something over and over, obviously your skill improves. And so many, many dyslexia people are very good at metaphors or telling stories to put a point across. And they can get very, very good at being really good influencers. And then um, finally, um, what came, one of the questions I asked at the end was, what would you tell your 21-year-old self if you could go back in that time? And over and over again, the answers came back and it was, really work on coping strategies. Get as fluent as you possibly can with your own coping strategies, which could be really simple things like, um, you know, if your memory's weak, then... Um, put your keys in your shoes next to the front door at night and you won't forget them, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or it <laughs> yeah. could be really quite complicated coping strategies to do with um, assistive technology and so on. So, you know, being really good at using um, activities that will speak to you rather than you, you know, so you can listen rather than having to read. Because obviously you need to be as fluent in that as you would be if you were a very, very good reader. So developing really good coping strategies was one thing they put forward. And um, you will sympathise with the next one, which was making the most of um, relationships that can help you. So the people who are successful, they always seem to have had someone in the background that was really helpful to them. So it might have been a parent. Um, traditionally, it tended to be mum rather than dad, simply, I think, because... Um, in our family set up very often until relatively recently, it's tended to be mums that were dealing with younger children rather than the dads. Um, so having a tiger mama will fight for you is really important. But in later life, it would be having somebody who might be a mentor or a coach or something like that who had an understanding of dyslexia. Sometimes it's a specialist teacher that's helped them, you know, done a diagnosis and gone on to help them with learning coping strategies. Anyway, but those were the 10 factors and um, they were, you know, very, very common across the whole piece of research I did with all those adults. Um, and there were really happy stories where people said, you know, I'm, I've recognised I had a miserable childhood with school, but I'm really happy. I've got a really happy life now and I'm really good at the things that I do. So it was by no means a kind of story of depression or miserableness or whatever, although I do know that some people, of course, aren't successful and don't find these things that helps them and then life can be difficult this i mean there's so many incredible uh elements to that um to the to the study you've done um self-esteem uh certainly is one that jumps out at me um the how low your self-esteem can be when you're in a class full of your peers and you feel like they are moving away from you and mm. 
you know, uh, adults utilize terms which um, I, I suppose cannot be helped, like below average reading age, mm. you know, things like that. It's, it's, it doesn't, it's obviously not meant to be or sound cruel, but it obviously doesn't fill you with a great deal of confidence in your ability. You know, the, the framing of it um, mm. isn't necessarily useful. Um, and then, and then encouraging children to 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 find or embrace uh, a, a niche. You know, when I found my niche, I found luckily I found acting very very early. Um, and, and and my mum not only was supportive in terms of my education as a dyslexic person, but as, as someone who would experience culture and and, and see art and things like that. Um, and then and then adaptive strategies that are, are flexible as well and, and a flexible relationship to the things you might not be good at. Okay, well, I'm not good at that, but you know what? It's worth me struggling, you know, through my math exam because I have this thing that is pulling me through, that is, that is giving me a reason to, um, you know, go through this <laughs> horrendous math exam. I mean, that was me in my GCSEs. I, I had to retake him at A level just because I was just so hopeless. So this is why I suspect I'm dyscalculic as well. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating that um, our education system will have us believe something about uh, certain people, and then I, I know loads of creative people who failed, for want of a better word, at school, and have had incredibly successful careers. Not only in terms of you know. Uh, recognition or respect, but in terms of like monetary respect, you know, it's it's never an indication that you're going to um, fail or that, that things aren't gonna. You're not going to have a life that you you enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, there are two sides to this. I think you know that um, teachers try very very hard to enable they do. children. Yeah. I mean, no doubt about that at all. I think there are real heroes and errands out there most teaching professions to try and do things. And I think it must be immensely frustrating for them that they can't necessarily get the help that they recognise children need. Um, I remember, for example, when my son was at school, um, I think he was sort of been there about three years in primary school, and um, it had had been recognised that he was exceptionally bright, but he wasn't able to get on with language, you know, reading, etc., writing and so on. Um, And... um, the teacher came to see me at home because she was not allowed to describe dyslexia within the school framework because the county council had banned it. And you think, you know, how awful that must have been for her, you know, to know exactly that she had a really bright child, but she couldn't help. And the only way she could help was to make up an excuse, which she did, to come and see me at home and then say, look, you know, within this county, um, we're not allowed to talk about this, but I think if you do a bit digging, a bit of research, you may find there's some of the answers that you're seeking um and we still see it now where um it may have changed it probably has got worse actually rather than better given that we've got all sorts of pressures on our social systems and things but four years ago when i was still heavily involved in the um the charity world with this um most um schools were being told they could only have up to 20 um assessments done a year and they'd have an intake of perhaps 100 children now, you know, or more, you know, in a school. Mm. And this was just not enough, I mean, to be able to, you know, get an assessment for a child to discover the dyslexic. And not all parents were able to pay, you know, £500 or whatever to have one done. No. So um, it must be, you know, very, very frustrating to be in a system that just doesn't, uh, you know, allow the flexibility to be able to teach children the way they can learn. 
nor the ability to actually, you know, be able to progress those that you know have got a problem, you know, because because you can't because the funding is just not there. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think I think we should we should absolutely be clear about that. Hmm. Yeah, we should absolutely be clear about that because teachers, the majority of teachers who get into teaching care care immensely about every absolutely. single child in their yeah. in their in their yeah. charge. And exactly. it must be incredibly frustrating to be inside yeah. a system which which is really failing lots of people on a on a wide scale because, as you yeah. say, it's 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 a huge investment. But then, what else are we investing in but our children? You know, because that's you know, of course, know. the I future. Think, I think, yeah, it needs rethinking, doesn't it? And so on, etc. It's um, yeah, it's 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 a problem. Um, but there is a lot that parents can do too, if as long as they're equipped and they know about it, and so on, etc. Because there are programs out there, like Toe by Toe, for example, which you know have been set up that a parent can coach a child and teach them to read as a dyslexic, um, uh, provided they you know keep doing it routinely every day or whatever. Um, there's a funny story in our household where my son used to say, but mum, it's Christmas Day. I haven't got to beat you on Christmas Day, have you? And I'd say, no, but you do have to on Boxing Day, which, you know, went on for years um, in terms of um, coaching and so on. He, incidentally, now is extremely successful as an individual and very happy. So it's, uh, it's my happy st- end of the story. Um, and what, what, sorry, what, what coping mechanisms do, 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 does he utilise? Um, lots. Um, he's very, very IT literate. Um, he's a software developer now, so he um, is, is is doing very well with um, all of that. Um, so he uses all sorts of things with his phone and so on, et cetera, to do things. He actually can read and spell very well now, but it took a long time to get there. Um, he's he's not like me. He's very numerate, um, so obviously that helps too. Um, but he still has issues of memory, so he makes himself lists on his phone very, very reg- regularly um, and so on. Yeah, yeah. So, so when was it? So when was it that he was diagnosed, and when was it that, that you um, oh, started gosh. your own sort of journey in, in, into? You know, as you say, like there's lots lots of things parents can do. But when was yeah. it? Because it's it's sort of different when it, when it's yourself. Yeah. You don't yeah. sort of acknowledge it, but when it's your children, you really oh, you fight start like to nail over to your child. Absolutely, no yeah. question about it. Yeah. So I guess we're talking about sort of 1990-ish, 1991, something like that. Um, and, you know, there wasn't much known about dyslexia when you go back 30-odd years. It's it sort of, um, you know, it, 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 there was a lot less known about it then than there is now. Um, so it's, you know, and also, you know, we didn't have the facilities we've got now with, you know, phones were like um, a brick that you were carrying around if you had a mobile phone. <laughs> I'm not sure we did at that stage. Um you know, it wasn't very easy to do searches on on the internet to the same degree, and so on, etc. So, so yeah, we've got many more tools at our fingertips now to be able to get to information and use things. Incidentally, if people do want to learn more about um, the the book that I wrote and so on, then it, then um, it's called Self Fulfillment with Dyslexia: A Blueprint for Success. Um, the publisher insisted on self fulfillment with dyslexia. I don't know why, because actually, it was much more than self fulfillment. It was actually about showing. Um, how you could deal with this and and be able to be really successful in life, um, and and you know I've given you the ten headers, but there's a chapter on each one and about how to actually um, you know. So you mentioned self esteem. It goes into how do you grow your self esteem? How do you become more confident and so on? And it's written very deliberately in a way that's accessible for the sexy people. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, and it's on Amazon. Um, so. 
you know, we will we'll put a link in the um, in the episode show notes, um, so people can can go direct from there and they can they can purchase from Amazon because it's uh, it's brilliant, wonderful, wonderful. Um, well, Margaret, you've been a wonderful guest and it's been an absolute pleasure to to have you wanted to pick your brain about this. Um, Absolutely fine. Let Just you... one disappointment: we haven't got any tunes in this podcast. <laughs> oh well, that's, that's you know, okay. like well, like Desert Island Discs. You know, is kind of the way I thought of. Oh, how do you do a podcast? And I thought oh, I listen to Desert Island Discs, but uh, <laughs> I'm only teasing. Well, do you know what? No, no, no. Do you know what? Maybe we'll call it the um, the Malpass moment, where uh, we ask <laughs> our guests at the end of at the end of the episode to select a song. Um, that, that is meaningful for them or meaningful for their dyslexia journey. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Now, interestingly, one of my main hobbies is I play the piano. And um, um, I, uh, so I have a piano here in Spain as well as one in England. Um, both are priced, but they're, they're rather wonderful. And um, what when I was um, learning, my, my father was... Um, very, very keen that I should learn to play the piano. It was a big, big deal in the household. Um, I'm, I'm an only child. It was, it was very, very important to him. And I found it very difficult at times, not so much the um, tonal quality or interpreting the music or whatever. It was the timing. Right. And I really struggled with um, being able to cope with timing because when you're learning to play a piece, uh, especially early on, you're taught to count as you play, in order to get the rhythm right. And I just couldn't do this. I simply couldn't yes. do it. It was quite impossible for me, and nobody knew why. And this went on right through into adulthood, where I knew that whilst I would play for myself, I wouldn't play in public. I was um, really, really um, found it very, very difficult to um, to do two things at once like that, which obviously is probably a working memory issue. Um, Yes. So, do you have a particular piano piece that, that uh, you would? Yeah, uh, just at the moment, um, I'm learning something by um, Clara Schumann, um, which is a, an absolutely beautiful piece. Beautiful piece. I really recommend listening to her music. It's romantic. It's beautiful. Quite challenging to play on the piano, but absolutely gorgeous. So, I recommend going and listening to some Clara Schumann. Great. That's wonderful. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for giving us your time. We My really pleasure. appreciate that and, um, and enjoy your time in Spain. I just hope that it helps others and hope, you know, that it um, is inspiring to, um, for others to try and find their 10 coping strategies of, um, and be successful. It's the key. I'm sure it will do. I'm sure it will do. That's, that's the whole point. Inspiration. Hopefully we can, we can provide some inspiration for people struggling. Lovely to talk to you this morning. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. You have been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude Mount McGowan. My guest today was Margaret Malpass. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and EPIC Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation. EPIC is a USA-based, non-profit organisation 
who create bonds among caring people devoted to solving global challenges of poverty, food insecurity, environmental degradation, human rights, and making peace. Check them out on their website, epicprojects.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please go rate and subscribe. Leave us a little review even. It really helps the podcast grow.